Well, as we prepare for the message this morning, I want to read a passage from the book of Acts. And uh, this is just a a great story uh, that is one of those stories that when when I get to heaven is, I hope it's on the highlight reel that we get to to go back and watch. Um, It's Acts 16, Paul and Silas. And I want to read that for us as we prepare to open up God's word. And uh, the words will be on the screen. You can follow along. It says this. The crowd rose up together against them. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. The prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Hi, I'm John Erickson Tata. And have you ever flown above the Rocky Mountains when you're in an airplane 35,000 feet above that, that massive mountain range? Well, if you have, and if you've looked down at that, those huge mountains and broad valleys, don't the problems of the world feel a little less overwhelming? Because you've got a different perspective. You have a higher perspective. And this is why I like Psalm 61 so much, especially that verse, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. When our world, when when your world presses in, and when deadlines circle like vultures, when commitments and people's expectations cut into your shoulders like like a heavy backpack, you need a higher vantage point. You need to get above it all. You need to move up so that you can look down on things. And God is that rock that is so much higher than you or me. So spend time with Christ the rock. When he is your high place, you can't help but gain a really great view of life. No one like uh, Johnny Erickson Tata to um, remind us that perspective uh, changes everything, especially in those life challenges. Like Paul and Silas and an in an inner prison, a Philippian jail uh, controlled by the Romans. You talk about um, having to check your perspective, uh, an attitude check. And yet they had an eternal perspective. They, had a, they, they were living on a higher plane. I mean, we live in this world both on the physical plane but also the spiritual plane, the spiritual level. And here is Paul and Silas in that Philippian jail, not having a a very good experience physically, 
the filth, the dampness, the darkness. If you noticed in the passage, it says they were in the inner prison. I mean, they were thrown down in the deepest part of the prison. But they had a high perspective, a Godward perspective. They had hope. They were infused with hope. So how was their response? They're singing and praising God. Um, they were experiencing a no-lose situation in a no-win world full of hope. Now this morning, we're going to pick up with our study of the book of Romans. We kind of took a, a break uh, over the Advent and Christmas season, and we're going to pick it up again where we left off at the end of November. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And if you're listening online, we're glad you're with us or downstairs in F, um, F3. Uh, so take your Bibles, Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. And Paul begins... <clears throat> This final major, uh, final paragraph of this major section of the book of Romans with a great question, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? It's a question that forces us to consider what our perspective is. What are, what are we going to say to these things? That these things uh, probably refer, at least in part, to the immediate context. Verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he has called, and these whom he called, he's justified, and these whom he justified, he's also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? But that's not the only thing I think that Paul has in mind. <clears throat> this final paragraph of uh, Romans chapter 8 um, ties us back to the, uh, the opening paragraph of this section of, uh, of the book of Romans, starting back in chapter 5. So if you go back to chapter 5 and um, verse... Five, you'll see a couple of words there in verse 5. It says, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts of the Holy Spirit. Hope because of God's love. You come now to chapter 8. At the end of chapter 8, verse 23, or, yeah, 23, it says, Not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption, our full adoption as sons, as children of God, and the redemption of our body. For, verse 24, in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen really isn't hope. For who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we don't see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. And then he concludes, as we'll get to in just a moment, with verse 35, so who's going to separate us from the love of God? There are those key words again, hope and love. This is what's called an inclusio. He said some things at the beginning of this major section, chapter 5. He comes back now and he puts the, the, the back bookend of it and talks about hope and love. And in between chapters 5 and chapters 8 is the unpacking of how we have hope concluding with, because nothing separates us from the love of God. So, what shall we say to these things? 
the things that Paul has been talking about in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. He's requiring us to have a response. What are we going to say to these things? You know, anytime we open God's Word, it could be a personal, uh, your study, you're reading something on your own, or you're in a Bible study, or, or like this on a Sunday morning, and we're opening up the Scriptures together. It always demands a response. God didn't just write this to fill up space. Say, oh, I have nothing better to do. I think I'll scribble some things for, the huma for humanity. No, it requires a response. He, he, he desires to change our life. What are we going to do with these things? What shall we say to these things? I've been writing this to you, Paul says, and now I want you to, to wrestle with it. What are you going to say to these things? By the way, that little preposition, to, what shall we say to? What should we say to these things? It's a little preposition <clears throat> that could literally be translated in the face of, before the face of, um, in view of. Here, here's all this truth, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. There it is. It's all there glaring at you. What are you going to do with it? What do you say to these things? Paul is not <laughs> letting us get out of Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 without a response. We live, as I said, on this physical plane, on this earthly level. The things we see, the things we encounter on a daily basis, work, school, life, just all the stuff that comes at us. But we're also spiritual beings. As believers in Jesus Christ, we, we have this other plane in which we experience the earthly plane and then that spiritual plane and we have to live out our lives with a spiritual perspective how do we how do we look at the earthly perspective through the lens of the spiritual perspective and that these things that paul has been writing about in romans chapter 8 5 6 7 and 8 help us to shape our spiritual perspective what do we say to these things now Let's walk through. I, I'm going to do this pretty quickly, but just by way of reminder, I'm going to walk through some verses of uh, Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, okay? Here are some of these things. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within us through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Verse 8 and 9, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? Well, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if Christ is in you, 
Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You have actually received a spirit of adoption as sons, which we cry out, Abba, Father. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he's predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. And who predestined, he's called, and these he called, he's justified, and those he has justified, he has glorified. All right, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? I mean, we can't get out of here without this stuff hitting us in our face. What do you say in the face of truth that's slamming you in the face? What do you say to these things? And such things that we read here in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 are written to change our perspective because perspective is crucial. Now the proper response to these things, the, I guess you could say the answer uh, to what shall we say to these things, the proper response to these things, Paul is going to lead us through the, the, that proper response in a series of questions in these following verses that help us have this response to the hope that is ours because of who we are in Christ. We have hope because of our relationship with God. We have hope because of our relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And we have hope because of our relationship to the circumstances in the earthly plane. Hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. So, first of all, we have hope because of our relationship to God. Verses 31 through 33 there's four truths about God here. Verse 31, again, what shall we say to these things? He says, first of all, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is our advocate. If God is for us, who or what can be against us? Again, a little preposition that is used. God is for us, mean he is, he is, he works on our behalf. God is not on the sidelines just cheering us away. You know, winding things up and saying, okay, go for it. And when you finish the race, I'll be at the, uh, you know, I'll be at the, the final end and, and I'll pat you on the back. No, he is actively engaged in our life. He is not our adversary. He is for us. He is intimately involved in the affairs of our life. How many people in the world would live different lives if they just knew somebody was on their side? That somebody was for them? And 
this simple little phrase, what Paul is saying is God is our advocate. He is for us, intimately involved. He is on our side every moment of the day. Boy, what, what a perspective changer. Now, I realize <clears throat> life can be pretty, pretty difficult. Um, I haven't gone through a whole lot of things in my 65 years of life, but I've gone through enough. Weeks in a hospital with cancer. Uh, we've struggled with a, a rebellious son who's walking with the Lord now, but uh, that's not fun. Uh, we lived with, uh, I lived with a mother-in-law who lived with us for 13 years, last seven with dementia. I mean, that, that's, that stuff like that is not fun. Some of you have gone through a lot worse. A lot of Christians have gone through a lot worse. And it's easy sometimes to slip into the mindset that, God, where were you in this? There's Christians who actually walk away and they're, they're angry with God. I'm angry with God. I, I suppose I can understand that, but we're missing something. Why can, how can we be angry with the supreme God who is for us? Every tick of the clock of our day. He is not our adversary. He's not up there kind of trying to figure out, well, how can I make life hard for Mark Carey today? He is for us. He is our advocate. How can we be angry with a God like that? What do we say to these things? God is for us. Second of all, God is our protector. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, now let's be honest. There's a lot of people that could be against us. It could be a, an unsaved spouse. It could be a cantankerous employer. It could be a, a painfully um, loud and disturbing neighbor. I mean, there could be so many things can be against us. Verse 35, he's going to talk about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword. There's a lot of things that can be against us. But what Paul is saying is, if God is for us, what can effectively deter God's purposes from happening in our life? If God is for us, come on, think it through. What really can be against us? There's no greater power than the one who stands before us, with us, upholds us. He is for us. So, Come on, give me an example. Who can be against us? Back... Uh, <clears throat> Right after the Earth's crust hardened, I was in high school and a small rural Nebraska community. And of course, everybody, every farm boy in Nebraska plays football. And uh, so our, and we had 11-man football. And uh, I was on offense, I was a left guard on the offensive line, the center, the left guard. And next to me was Todd Simonson. He was a year older. And for three years, I got to play offensive guard next to offensive tackle Todd Simonson, 6'5", 285-pound, hard-bodied farm boy who eventually played college ball and was drafted by the pros. I don't remember one time in my high school career, at least while Todd was left tackle, where a blitzing linebacker came through or anybody had a, did a cheap shot or played dirty or 
had any problems. I mean, I just kind of backed away and let Todd handle things. <laughs> because if Todd was for me, who could be against us? You know, the grand big scheme of things of life. This is what Paul is saying. What, what do we say to these things? I mean, God's Word, the wonderful truths of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, let alone Romans 1 through 4. If God is for us, who can be against us? There's no power too powerful that can cause us spiritual harm, that can deter God's purposes accomplishing, being accomplished in our life. He is our advocate, he is our protector, thirdly, he is our provider. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32 said, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God has already given us the supreme best, he delivered his son. He did not spare his son. Jesus died on the cross and he paid for our sin. If he did that, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, what are the all things? What shall we say to these things? What are the all things? What, what are the things that Paul has talked about in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8? Like a hope that doesn't disappoint? It's certain and sure? Like being rescued from the wrath of God, spared from the wrath of God? Like in chapter 5, the reign of life, experiencing the abundance of life in this world. Like experiencing the full redemption of our bodies. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. And the certain hope of a resurrected new body. If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son and gave him to us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's already given us the best. Will not a home in heaven <laughs> be thrown in? Future glorification, spiritual power on a daily basis, comfort in the midst of trials, peace that passes all understanding, freedom from the power of sin in our life, and ultimately, the redemption of our bodies, the total freedom of sinlessness before his presence. You see, the greater gift includes the lesser. Someone gives you a, a brand new $35,000 car and then says, by the way, I'm going to throw in a free car wash. It's like, oh, woohoo, free car wash. No, how about the whole? I mean, he, he gave us the best. His son pays had already paid for our sins. How will he not also freely give him all things? God did not go light on meeting out judgment on his son. Paul is saying he's not going to go light on meeting out blessing on his children. This is our hope. This is the perspective changer that Paul is wanting us to grapple with. By the way, notice it said... Um, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Who delivered up Jesus for crucifixion? Someone once wrote, it wasn't the Jews for envy. It wasn't Pilate out of fear. 
It wasn't Judas for money. It was the Father out of love. God the Father delivered his Son. And if he was willing to do that, will he not also freely give us all things? When God promises us these wonderful, eternal, spiritual blessings, they're certain and sure. Fourth thing that this passage is, is that God is our justifier. It says in verse 33, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect, God's chosen ones? God is the one who justifies. God is the one who's acquitted us. Who's going to bring a charge? Well, I suppose there's plenty of people could because I'm looking out and every one of you are sinners, and, and so am I. There's plenty of charges that can be leveled against every one of us in this room. Can you imagine the scene in heaven? The throne of God, there we are, we stand before him, and someone comes up and says, oh, wait, oh, hold a, wait a minute, God. I know for a fact that that guy had an had a anger issue. I know for a fact that that person had a, had a, had a gossip problem. I know for a, that, that person standing before you, God, insulted me incessantly on this. Oh, there's a lot of charges that can be brought up against any one of us. You know what God's going to say? Enough. My son has paid for their sins. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who has already acquitted sinners who receive that free gift by faith and faith alone. This is a wonderful truth. God is the one who justifies. He's the justifier. Our hope as Christians, it's a hope that won't disappoint because of our relationship with God. Second of all, we have hope that won't disappoint because of our relationship with Christ himself. Look at verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And there's four very important phrases, descriptive phrases about Jesus that infuse us with a proper perspective of life. Who is the one who's going to stand and condemn? Well, who can? We have triumphant security because of the love of Jesus. He was the one who died in our place. He stepped from the throne of glory. He came to this earth. Think of it, folks. When you go home today, go and look at, look at yourself in a mirror. And when you'll be looking at somebody, that Almighty God died for. That the Lord Jesus Christ stepped from his throne in glory and came and died for you. Who's the one who's going to condemn? Jesus was the one who died. He loves us. Second of all, it says, yes, rather, and he was raised from the dead. He didn't stay dead because the work he, has, he accomplished on the cross was perfectly sufficient satisfying the Father's righteous demands. Folks, if one of your sins, even the one you're going to commit 10 years from now, some grievous sin 10 years from now, every one of our sins has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every one of them. He was raised from the dead, and he's alive. His payment on the cross was perfectly sufficient. Who's going to condemn? Jesus died, he was raised. Thirdly, it says he's at the right hand indicating his sovereignty, his dominion, his authority 
over all things. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1 that God raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he's put all things under subjection to his feet. Jesus right now at the right hand of the Father and all authority and dominion and power resides within him. Who's going to condemn? When Jesus, the fourth thing, is at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. Not only does the Holy Spirit intercede for us, back in verse 26, 27, Jesus Christ himself. And God the Father has the ear, or Jesus the Son has the ear of God the Father. And he intercedes for us. Our hope does not disappoint. What do we say to these things? What's the conclusion? Look at our relationship to the Father, our advocate, our protector, our provider, our justifier. Look at our relationship to the Son who died and, and, and rose again and is at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. Finally, we have hope that won't disappoint because of our relationship to circumstances. Verse 35 who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, these are real things that happen. Yes, we live on this, this physical plane, this earthly plane. And bad things happen to good people to God's children. Bad things happen. There are believers in Jesus Christ who are suffering from famine around the world right now. Nakedness, peril of persecution, of loss of life in, in Muslim countries. There's things that are happening right here in our own country. Bad things happen to very good people. Well, Paul is saying here, no matter what the world throws at us or Satan may throw at us, we are secure in God's love. With tribulation or distress, I like that little word distress, it literally comes from a word that means to be squeezed in, to be boxed in. Do you ever feel that way sometimes? You just get overwhelmed. It's like, oh, can anything else happen? And then all of a sudden, you know, 10 minutes later, boom! Like, where did that come from? And you just are feeling like this squeezed-in feeling. But does that separate us from the love of God? Paul is saying nothing can separate us. In fact, he says in verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are overwhelmingly conquerors. We are super conquerors through him who loved us. Is that true in, in our lives? Do, do, when we go through some really, really tough things, are we feeling like we're super conquerors? Through Jesus Christ, that is a reality. The key is having that right perspective. Being aware of our triumphant security in him, a hope that doesn't disappoint because he loves us. He's for us. 
He's on our side. Verse 38 and 39, what does it say? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and it's like Paul says, I can't think of anything else, so well, let me just do the catch-all category, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, can't I step away and, and separate myself from the love of God? Well, I guess you could if, if you weren't a created thing. I don't know what you are. <laughs> Last time I checked, we're created things. Nothing separates us from the love of God. We are eternally secure in His love. I can't for the life of me, I just can't for the life of me understand why, how people can teach a doctrine that says you can lose your salvation. I don't get it. What are we missing about God? Is our view of God so infinitesimal, so, so small, that we could actually think we could be separated from his love? Do you sense the hope, the victory, the, the assurance, the complete security that Paul is conveying here because of, of God? Our relationship to him, our relationship to, to Jesus, and how we are to view circumstances in life? I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death, and by the way, that's in a... A, a Greek construction, I am convinced, a verbal form that's called a perfect tense, which means it's an action that happened in the past and has ongoing results. I am convinced. What Paul is saying is, there was a time in my life where I wasn't convinced. I didn't know God that way. We don't know what it is, but it's something happened in Paul's life where he became convinced. It's also passive, a passive voice. I became convinced. I was convinced by God. And I will never change that conviction. I am convinced. There was a point in time, and I got my mind changed. <laughs> It'll never be unchanged. Later, in his final epistle, in 2 Timothy, Paul wrote, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And there's the same phrase again. And I am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Look, this, this world is not going the way we would have scripted it, right? Not just this past year or the events now, but probably other events in, of your individual life. It's not necessarily how we would have scripted it. Last time I checked, COVID isn't giving up. In fact, there's some new strains popping up that can be frightening. We saw the horrific, disturbing events of last Wednesday. I mean, we've never seen this stuff in our lifetime. Our capital under assault, the nation's capital, uh, uh, this world pandemic ravaging our world. We have a new administration that's going to soon take office. And it's disturbing for a whole bunch of Americans that that is going to happen. And if the old administration would have continued in office, it would have stirred a whole bunch of other Americans too. So look, we're living in a no-win world, right? You know why? 
We don't have the time to go back there, but Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being displayed against all unrighteousness, ungodliness of men that suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so what has God done? He gives us over. That's what's happened to our country. It's under the wrath of God. And he's given us over. So sin upon sin, and it's, it's snowballing. We're experiencing the wrath of God. Like Paul and Silas of Acts chapter 16, metaphorically speaking, this world is in the, the deep, dark inner prison of the muck and mire of, of, of sin in the clutches of the God of this world. It has been ever since Adam and Eve took of that fruit. Living in a world that's gone mad. But my ultimate concern, brothers and sisters in Christ, my ultimate concern is not COVID. Look, if you, don't, if you know Jesus, I think I read somewhere that absent from the body is present with the Lord, okay? My ultimate concern is not who's taking office on January 20th or whatever it is. My ultimate concern is that I, as a follower of Jesus Christ and a believer in Jesus Christ, will maneuver in this life with a hopelessness, with a sense that who is for us? <laughs> and forget that I'm eternally loved. My concern is that I, I live a hopelessness uh, that then impacts my life and I, I can't share hopelessness with the world. As Christians, are we living a hope? Are we super conquerors? Are we living this earthly plane with the spiritual plane in mind? Panic and fear and hopelessness comes into the life of a born-again believer when we forget these things. What shall we say to these things? We have an eternal relationship with God. We have a new identity in Christ. We are eternally loved by God who is accomplishing his perfect plan and purposes for our life. We'll consummate it in this glorious hope, the redemption of our bodies. The, the one thing that we're struggling with on this life, our eternal internal selves, our spiritual beings are forever made alive. The moment of faith, but it's encased in this body of sin. Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free from this body of sin? Oh, we have a hope that won't disappoint. Who, who he's foreknown, he's predestined to be conformed in the image of his Son, raised up to a newness of life in Christ. We are super conquerors. What do we say to these things? We're believers in Jesus Christ. We're children of the, of the King of Kings. And so many times as believers, we walk around all caught up with the, with the sinfulness and the mess of this world. Folks, we have to make a choice when we leave here today. Every time the Word of God is taught, you walk out of here, you better make a choice. Either choose that these things that God has said is true or they're not. And if they're true, 
and you find yourself in the stinking, dark, damp inner prison of life, and you believe they're true, you're going to be singing. You're going to be shouting praises to God because you know He's for you. He's providing for you. He's already declared you justified. He's given you the very best in His Son who died and rose again and is at the right hand of the Father and He intercedes for us and that nothing, nothing will separate us from His love. The choice is ours. Believe it, rehearse it, study it, and find joy and peace or succumb to the circumstances of life, what shall we say to these things? Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that in your kindness and in your perfect plan, you moved upon a, a former hater of Jesus, Saul of Tarsus, marvelously converting him to pick up a pen and under your divine inspiration to write words of life. Forgive us, Father, when we simply give head nods to the truth of your word. We fail to fly at that 30, 35,000 foot perspective that Johnny was talking about and fail to see the wonderful these things that are true that if believed changes our whole perspective of life. I pray, Father, that you'll fill us with your joy and with your um, comfort and your peace in knowing that these things are true and that you love us with an everlasting love and nothing will separate us from that. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.